time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Ah, Friday. <laughs> oh, man. Busy week. Not quite out of boxes yet. Almost done putting together everything that uh, needs to be done for making Pirate Christian Radio hit on all cylinders. Almost there. It's a big deal when you move across the country. I didn't think it would be that big of a deal. You know, you just pack up your house, you unload your house in, you know, you move your business. Who cares? It's no problem. <laughs> All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that desires to bring you a daily dose of biblical discernment. How do we do that? Well, we take and compare what people are saying out there, and we compare it to the Word of God. Basically, we work from the idea that the Bible alone is the sole authority, the supreme authority of truth and doctrine when it comes to understanding who God is, how we uh, have relationship with them, everything, okay? Not my reason, not my liver shivers, not my, none, none of that. It's the Bible and the Bible alone. And if something somebody says contradicts the Bible, we call them out on it. Why? Well, because truth matters. And, uh, and Jesus warned us that in the last day there would be False prophets, false Christs, deceivers, and even in the time of the apostles, there were heretics and deceivers that had gone into the church, wolves in sheep's clothing, and nothing has changed. It's the same today as it was back then, and so part of the job of the body of Christ is to think critically and to think biblically and compare what people say to the Word of God. And I am not exempt from this little exercise. In fact, if I say something that contradicts the Word of God... You need to email me and call me on it. Those are mo some of my favorite emails. Now, some, sometimes it turns out to be true, and sometimes the criticism eh, falls short. of, uh, And the reason why it would fall short is because it doesn't properly interpret God's Word. All right, we've got a good program lined up today. Um, we got some listener email, and I have another one from KJV Tom from Kansas City that I want to address, and I thought that would be fun. It's not going to be nearly as long of an answer as it was yesterday. We spent quite a bit of time uh, doing an exercise that, if you go back and listen to it, gives you a good example of how you take what somebody says, look at the verses, and see if the claims that they're making pan out in context. It's all about sound biblical hermeneutics. All right. Um, so we got listener email today. Uh, here's a big one. Uh, Bill Clinton. I've got a big religious uh, revelation regarding Bill Clinton today that we've got to play. Oh, man. Um, it, then I'm going to uh, basically give a comment about a, a little Levin piece that I put up that I knew would be controversial, but what's interesting is, is the feedback that I'm getting, and it has to do with Sermon Central. We're going we're gonna to finally get to uh, uh, Granger Community Church's golden calf question that's on Tim Stevens's blog, and today we're going to be reviewing a sermon from Scott Hodge from the, I think, Orchard Fellowship. He's up in Illinois, and uh, it's a sermon on baggage. Yeah, you, apparently we all have baggage. And so we're going to take a look at that sermon. And the reason why we're going to be looking at the baggage sermon is to see if he is correctly diagnosing the problem that we humans face in regards to our relationship with God and see if he gets the correct diagnosis and then from the correct diagnosis, see if he, or the from the diagnosis, see if he gives us the correct 
uh, solution for the problem that we have. So it'll be an interesting show today, and it's Friday, so hope you all are going to have a great weekend. All right, moving on to listener email. Got some funny ones here. Um, ben Mordecai writes, he says, you know, Chris, I've got to say that you're wrong. <laughs> Now, before you before you think Ben has taken me out behind the woodshed with a stick, I, I think he wrote this with his tongue in his cheek. He says, you're wrong. The Bible does talk about underwear. <laughs> okay. He's responding to something I said to KJV Tom. And, you know, KJV Tom correctly pointed out that the Bible doesn't say anything about pews, about vestments, and, you know, about uh, going to communion and kneeling at the rail or anything like that. And I countered by basically saying, yeah, but the Bible doesn't say anything about wearing underwear either. And yet I've never been to a church service without it, at least not that I'm aware of. And, um, and so Ben writes that, uh, the Bible does talk about underwear. He says, remember poor Dorcas in the book of Acts when, uh, she died, the widows were holding up the underwear that <laughs> the underwear that Dorcas had made before she died. Okay. But <laughs> I've got to go and look this passage up just to see if this is even, oh man. Okay, hang on. We'll do a simple word search here for Dorcas. By the way, I went to uh, I went to school with a gal named Dorcas. Um, unfortunately, uh, she was teased heavily for having that name. All right, um, let me see. Acts chapter nine, starting in verse thirty-six. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was uh, near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two of uh, two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood be- uh, widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments. Tunics. Now, that's funny. It actually has like a little asterisk next to it. Let me see what we're translating the word tunics as. Re- <clears throat> Excuse me. While I consult my uh, my Greek translation of the uh, New Testament. Okay. Okay. Uh, robes. Well, okay. It's korai. Okay. Uh, so that's a widow. Hang on a second. Widow stood crying. Showing him the robes. Uh, Ketonas. Here it is. It's a tunic or a shirt, a garment worn next to the skin. You know, Ben, I stand corrected. A, 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 a uh, ketone is uh, the Greek word here. Um, and it is a skin, a, a garment or a shirt worn next to the skin. Worn by both sexes, uh, so it's, it's it's it could definitely be underwear here. I Ben, you're right. Dorcas had made underwear. <laughs> oh man, I just love what I get taken behind the woodshed. That's funny. All right. Um, so uh, holding up her underwear that they had made before she died, it, ultimately she was risen from the uh, she was raised from the dead, and this was a testimony to the reliability of Peter's teaching. Well, Peter was teaching on the gospel, that's for sure, as well as a picture of the gospel bringing people back to life. Amen. All this to say, your denial of underwear in the Bible is false and satanic. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> I repent. Ben, I repent. You have schooled me in uh, in biblical underwear. <laughs> okay. Anyway. He says, I, I know that you uh, like to cling to your rugged medieval Lutheran liturgy, but you're going to have to get over it. Oh, that's hilarious. Ben, great email. Okay, Michael Ritzman uh, writes, Michael is uh, <clears throat> he's a he's an accountant. He practices the dark art of accounting. And he says, Dear Brother Bro, my mouth is a gape. This pastor, or should I say prophet, now he's who's he referring to? He's referring to... Uh, the sermon that we did yesterday, I think his name, uh, pastor's name was Scott Wilson uh, from the Oaks Fellowship. And uh, it, during, during the sermon review yesterday, this guy literally claimed that he was getting prophetic words from God. And he, he started off in, in the book of Jonah and ended up preaching what he believed God had given him directly. Prophetic words, direct prophetic words. And so Michael Ritzman is responding to that. He says, uh, this pastor, or should I say prophet, has the bold temerity to claim that God spoke a unique prophetic word to him in the same way as he did to Jonah. Wow. Yeah, wow was right, and that's exactly what he claimed. If you haven't heard yesterday's program, go back and listen to the sermon review on the Dirtiest Job sermon. Kid you not, that's exactly what happened. He says, okay, I'm over my shock. If it is true that he has a word from God, then he needs to write it down and paste it in the back of his Bible, because apparently God has more to say. This, quote, word from the Lord needs to be added to the canon as the epistle of Scott Wilson to the Church of uh, Oaks Fellowship. Here, I've started it for you. Okay, so uh, this is a brand new addendum to the Bible. Uh, This is uh, the new epistle of Oaks. And so Oaks chapter 1, verse 1 begins... Scott Wilson was praying every day in the power of God when the word of God came to him, consuming his life, speaking to him about huge things. He wants to speak to us. (laughs) Okay, this is funny. And Scott said, thus says the Lord, you need to dream bigger dreams. You need to pray bigger prayers. Uh, verse three, what you are doing, what are you doing? Praying small prayers and dreaming small dreams that, that you come up with. Four, verse four, come on, guys, dream in a way that is worthy of who God is. <laughs> verse five, and Scott said, uh, God is uh, dreaming cities. Come on, guys, don't you understand? God has you in a place where you are seeking God. Think bigger, dream of cities. Thus says the Lord, thou shalt say yes. Need I go on? No, Michael, I think you made your point, and I think it's brilliant. I might have to take that segment of Hodges, uh, I mean, Scott Wilson's sermon, just where he claims that he's getting direct revelation. And Michael, I'll have to steal this. I might, this might, your, uh, the epistle of Oaks might find its way over to the museum of idolatry over at a little 11.com. All right. Um, Logan writes, I'm not sure where Logan's from. Uh, he says, dear Chris Colombo. <laughs> okay. He says, finally, you are back. That was a long week or two without my daily fighting for the faith. I seriously had withdrawals. Glad to hear you again, and I hope you're enjoying the cold weather. Um, and he gives me a pro tip. Use salt on ice. Yeah, it's when we first got here, we got here, it, it was snowing when we got here. And uh, there's salt everywhere on the roads. <laughs> I'm kind of hoping that we get some rain to get rid of the salt. And uh, it, the funny thing was, a week ago it was like in the twenties, and now today was like in the sixties. It, it, the temperature swings are are amazing here. Anyway, he says, I had an epiphany on the whole Granger Community Church and other churches like them, and I finally figured it all out. 
Subtle deception is always more dangerous than overt deception. Logan, you're absolutely right. And, you know, let me just say this, okay? When you think of deception, think of counterfeits. Counterfeit money is a great metaphor or great uh, analogy when talking about um, what goes on in the world of false doctrine. And, you know, when you look at money that is counterfeited, if I were to give you, you know, a $4 bill and with the portrait of Mickey Mouse on it, you would immediately resp- you would immediately spot that and say, "Ah, oh, that's counterfeit. That's not real money." It's not the stuff that that is ridiculously crazy different that you generally have to worry about. Although there's always somebody that's going to go for that. When it comes to deception in the church, it's always the counterfeit that looks and feels just like the original that's the most dangerous. Because remember, you can't spend counterfeit money. It really has no value. Counterfeit Christianity, counterfeit doctrines, they have no value. They're being sold a bill of goods by Satan. And when you try to spend that currency in heaven, you'll find that you can't. That's the danger of it. Here you think you're gathering up the wealth and riches and the, of the wisdom of God, and you're actually just been sold a handful of magic beans. All right, we so we continue with <clears throat> Logan's uh, email here. All right, he says subtle deception is always more dangerous than overt deception. If Satan were subtly de- uh, were to subtly deceive Christians and and screw with unbelievers, there are only two things that he has to get out of a church that and that church is effectively and unwittingly unwittingly working for him. Number one, the authority of the Bible and the unique definition of Christ as revealed in said Bible. You're right. These two concepts are what differentiate authentic Christianity from all others. Let me say that again. The authority of the Bible and the unique definition of Christ as he is revealed in the Bible. Granger has the Bible, but like the Roman Catholic Church, or uh, uh, it is not used hardly at all compared to their own teachings on rituals and traditions or more poignantly, their obsession with pop culture and contextualization. You know, Logan, again, I think you have a good point here. It, when we look at the Roman Catholic Church, you know, I think it's an apostate church that teaches a false, uh, false gospel. Okay, it's not a gospel of grace. In fact, at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church officially anathematized the gospel. If you believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ's work alone, you, you, they've condemned you to hell for believing that. Okay, and I've spent some time in the Roman Catholic Church, and I'll tell you the one thing that is just discouraging is is that um, you'll hear the gospel when in the liturgy, it's there in the liturgy, but they've got it literally covered with all these other distracting things, prayers to Mary, prayers to the saints, their traditions, you know, all this other stuff just gets in the way and it obscures the gospel. In the same way, these seeker-sensitive churches, in much the same way that the Roman Catholic Church has put these bizarre things that distract you away from the gospel, from from the Bible and from Christ, so do these seeker-sensitive churches. They are obsessed with sex, with finances, with living your dreams, with, you know, you know name it. We've, got, we've been through a, the, practically the whole gamut here a few times on fighting for the faith, and we'll continue going around this track as long as we need to. 
Anyway, so uh, Logan continues. He says, A Granger has Jesus, but like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Islam, or any other number of religion, Christ is not portrayed as he is to be according to, this, uh, according to the Bible. There, Jesus is more interested in social justice, debt, sex, and everything else except for the gospel. It is evident to me that Granger Community Church has more in connection with a false religion like Islam, Mormonism, or the Roman Catholic Church than Orthodox Christianity. And here's the point. It's not that the Orthodoxy does, <clears throat> doesn't even really have a place in a church like Granger. It doesn't make any sense. They've set, it, they've set Christianity up as a religion that works, not as a religion that's true. And you got to understand, Christianity and the gospel, the gospel in particular is not something that you do. It's something that you proclaim. It's something that you believe. And so what happens is, is that they've redefined the gospel in such a way that the gospel is something that you do. You know, and it's not, and, and whether or not Christ is really God in human flesh, whether or not there's a trinity, or whether or not the Bible is is the sole authority when it comes to doctrine and truth. All of that stuff really doesn't have a place in that brand of Christianity because they've primarily made Christianity into something that works. See, it'll you, you apply these principles and like magic, it'll clean up all of the garbage in your life and all the dirt in your life, and you'll you'll clean up really well and you'll be happier, more fulfilled, less stressful, um, things like that. So that's the problem, okay? All right, so Tim Stevens apparently reveals in the fact, uh, revels in the fact that uh, the majority of his church is closer to any number of false religions than actual Christianity. That truly is something amazing when a leader of a Christian church likes the reality that their church is more like the world than like Christ. Yeah, that's the other thing about it. Their glory is their shame. They're glorying in the fact that they are so relevant, that they are so, you know, that that, that somebody who's a Christian, a non-Christian, an unbeliever, somebody who's unchurched, that's their word, can come into their church and be completely comfortable. And to which I would say, why is it that we want unbelievers to be completely comfortable at church? I've been a Christian all my life. And there are times when I'm just downright uncomfortable in church, especially when my pastor is basically turning up the heat of the law to flamethrower and is aiming it right at my face. Yeah, I'm uncomfortable. And I should be. Uh, But anyway, so anyway, um, Logan continues, just as a hypothetical situation, if Christ were to come to a synagogue where the majority didn't believe the Bible and that he wasn't the only way to heaven, do you think he'd hold a series of uh, a whole a series on why following him would lead to their best sex. No. <laughs> do, you, do you have any examples of the Apostle Paul and any of his missionaries breezing into a synagogue and making the case that, uh, you know, he, from the Bible, Jesus is the Messiah, and that means we can get it on better? No, nowhere. I mean, as soon as you tack on, you know, better sex to the real proclamation of Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the fulfillment of prophecies regarding who the, the, the coming Messiah, that he is the Christ promised by God from the beginning. As soon as you say those words, saying, following it up with, oh, and by the way, you can have better sex too, people will look at you and go, what? What? You've got to be kidding me. 
How could you trivialize Jesus and you know, these wonderful truths about who he is and what he's done uh, by tacking on, oh, and you can have a better sex life too? It, it doesn't make any sense at all. Anyway, he says, mm, clouded with pragmatism, their vision is led, has led them into the dark side. Warren and Hybels have. Yeah, I agree. All right. Um, okay, this is from uh, Robert Workman. Bob, for those of you who know Bob, I don't really know him, but Robert Workman, Bob writes, he says, Hi, Chris, glad to see you're back on the air and on the internet, or on the internet anyway. Yeah. That's the thing is, is that the new media has caused us to have to change the way we think about things. I'm on the air, if you consider the internet air. What am I, uh, blasting across the wires? <laughs> have to. I might have to rethink that. We might come up with some clever way of describing that. He says, also, I'm glad to hear that you're uh, setting, uh, setting into life in Indiana. Actually, I'm liking it here a lot liking it a lot people are really nice the one thing i've noticed is is that in the people here in indiana they actually are interested in having a conversation with you Uh, people in southern california not so much here in indiana a perfect stranger you can strike up a conversation and it'll go 20 30 minutes now you got to be careful you got to make sure you got 20 or 30 minutes to commit to this conversation with a perfect stranger but they're deep, meaningful, they're friendly, they're nice, and we, we've got all the same stores, practically all the same restaurants. The only difference is the weather. Still getting used to it, and you might hear me complaining a little bit about that over the next few months, especially as we go from cold weather into the hot, humid weather, and then back into the freezing cold weather again. Although, I'm in a, in a sadistic kind of way, I'm kind of hoping that the winter isn't over yet. I would really like to experience a really nice major uh, winter storm with, you know, temperatures, you know, with a wind chill below zero. I haven't experienced one of those yet. So, you know, uh, and, and I know that those of you who are living in the Midwest are saying, bite your tongue. We don't need that. <laughs> okay. So uh, Robert continues. This is just listening to your comment on how the Bible should be the beef in the hamburger. And I agree with you. I also agree that in most of the sermons you review, uh, that they have the Bible as the seasoning. But I'd go one step further. In most, if not all, of the ones I've heard you review lately, the Bible is nothing more than the sesame seeds on the bun. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> little <laughs> little sermon seeds, yeah, little Bible seeds. He says, and just to rub it in in a brotherly way, the temperature here in Stillwater, Oklahoma, at 920 at night is 73 degrees. I, I know what that's all about. Don't rub it in there. I says, keep up the good work. Thanks. All right. We're going to switch gears here. We're going to start into uh, into KJV Tom's second email. I I'm, I'm, don't have time to respond to everything that he's brought up, but I want to bring this one up because it touches on the liturgy. Now, I know, okay, I've come out of American evangelicalism. I've done the happy, clappy, praise band, hands up in the air thing. Done it. Okay? And believe me when I tell you, coming into confessional liturgical Lutheranism, it was frightening. It was scary. It was uncomfortable. And now that I've been doing this for years and years and years and years, it is an old friend. Okay? So um, the, this gives me an opportunity to you know, respond and talk a little bit about the liturgy and why I think it's a great thing. 
So Tom from uh, KJV Tom from Kansas City. KJV, I'm assuming he hasn't confirmed this yet. It basically means that he's an advocate of the King James Version only uh, when it comes to Bible translations. But KJV Tom says, I've simply got to call you on this. I'm sitting here listening to you respond to Tony's email. Now, Tony's email was an email that we read on Monday. He says, you recommended that he find a good liturgical church, preferably a liturgical Lutheran church. And this is where it's fun. He says, could you please cite for me, Sola Scriptura, one passage of Scripture upon which to base your preference for a liturgical church? <sighs> All right. He says, I would like to know the benefits of liturgical worship over other forms of worship, free form, spontaneous, congregational. And you can only use Scripture in your defense of your position. This is this is the fun part. And he, uh, this is going to be fun when I get to answer this. He says, or alternatively, admit that this is a personal preference that has no basis in Scripture and is therefore safely ignored at no peril to the other party whatsoever. The liturgy is, of course, based on a church calendar which Luther imported from the Catholic Church with little or no changes. Please provide for me the Scripture that points out either the necessity or the advantage of basing the liturgy on the church calendar. Also, please provide me with a scriptural basis for defending Luther's adoption of the Catholic church calendar. Ay, ay, ay. Okay, now, let me say this. If we go to the Augsburg Confession, and I'm quoting the Confessions of the Lutheran Faith because I believe that they correctly expound sound doctrine. Okay, sound biblical doctrine. It's a good summary of it. In uh, the Augsburg Confession... Article 7, concerning the church, it says this, It is also taught that at all times there must be and remain one holy Christian church. It is the assembly of all believers among whom the gospel is purely preached and the holy sacraments are administered according to the gospel. For this is enough for the true unity of the Christian church that there is the go- that the, that there the gospel is preached harmoniously according to a pure understanding and that the sacraments are administered in conformity with the divine word. It is not it is not necessary for the true unity of the Christian church that uniform ceremonies instituted by human beings be observed everywhere. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let me sum it all up for you. When it comes to ceremonies and the liturgy, we have complete freedom. Complete freedom. It is not a mandate. It is not something that you have to do or you're going to be damned. Not even close. Okay? So let me start off by saying, before we go anywhere, Tom, that is is that you have to understand the Lutheran position, okay? Liturgical worship, the reason why we do it, is not based in some kind of a bizarre, sick, and twisted, legalistic form of worship. That's not it at all. In fact, if you want to know why we do the liturgy the way we do and what we think about the liturgy, then stay tuned because we're up to our first break. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't mean to manipulate y'all that way. No, it, it, but stay tuned. We're, we'll actually, when we get on the other side of this break, we'll have a chance to answer that question. So if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And we will be right back.
No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. That was the theme of our 2008-2009 school year at St. Peter's Lutheran Day School in Plymouth, Michigan. We're planning for the next school year with an open house on March 22nd. For more details, please see our website, www.stpetersLutheranPlymouth.org, or call us at 734-453-0460. That's 734-453-0460. Avast there, Pirate Christian Radio listener. Have you visited the Pirate Christian Radio store yet? This is a place where you can stock up on Pirate Christian Radio gear. Don't be a stowaway on our ship. You can let your friends and neighbors know that you are a proud member of our crew by buying one of our Pirate Christian Radio t-shirts or coffee mugs. The best part is that all the proceeds help to keep our ship afloat so that we can take people's false doctrine and share the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Log on to piratechristianradio.com, click on the store link from our homepage, and do it today. You'll be glad that you did. listening to Fighting for the Faith here on Pirate Christian Radio. Warning. If you're attending a church where your pastor isn't giving you the goods, isn't sharing the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then, uh, well, listening to this program could cause you consternation, could cause you dissatisfaction, could make you feel like it's time to get a new pastor. Or leave and get a new church. Just want to let you know that. But if you are attending a church where you're getting the goods, you're getting the gospel, this show is going to help you really appreciate the pastor that you have and the gift that God has given you in such a pastor. I want to remind you that uh, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means we depend on you in order to pay our bills. Yeah, it is true. So if you're benefiting from this program, then will you partner with us? You can do so couple of different ways. You can log on to fightingforthefaith.com and click on the donate button. Or if you would like to send your gift via check, you can make your peck <clears throat> Let me try that again. You can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. That's Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana. Zip code is 46038. And for those of you that are Helping us already, I want to thank you for your contributions. They are very much appreciated. All right, uh, we're going to continue on with our response to KJV Tom regarding the liturgy. Now, Tom, I've got to point something out to you here, and I want to make this clear, okay? You, you claim the liturgy is based on a church calendar which Luther imported from the Catholic Church. Actually, that's not true, okay? The liturgy is different from the church year. 
they're wound together, but they're actually two separate things. And so I want to talk about the liturgy itself. Now, going, coming back to your challenge, he says, could you please cite for me sola scriptura, one passage of scripture upon which to base your preference for a liturgical church? Now, there's obviously no passage in the Bible that says, when thou worshipeth, you musteth goeth to a liturgical churcheth. It doesn't say anything like that in the Bible. But I'll tell you my preference for liturgical worship actually is based upon the fact that the liturgy itself is chock full of Scripture. And to help kind of prove this, um, I happen to be holding a copy of the Lutheran Service Book, which is, you know, the latest hymnal that's put out by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and the one that uh, we've been using at the church I was attending in Southern California for the past year, year and a half, as long as it's been out. And I want to point something out to you here, and this is interesting. I'm going to walk you through the uh, the liturgy a little bit. Okay, the liturgy is basically the order of service that we follow and the things that we say and do during a church service. Okay. And so the church service begins literally in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is based upon Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So even our invocation, the begin, the very beginning of our service, the invocation where we begin in the name of, we gather in the name of the one true God, the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, even that, the beginning of that is Scripture. And then we immediately move into a confession of sins. And the confessions of, of sins begins with this. It says, the pastor says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then the congregation responds, but if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What have we just done there? We have literally together recited 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. We then go into a confession of sins. And then the pastor says one of two things, but I'll read the second one it says in the, in the mercy of almighty God, Jesus Christ was given to die for our sins. And for his sake, God forgives, forgives us, forgives us all of our sins to those who believe in Jesus Christ. He gives the power to become children of God and bestows on them the Holy spirit. May the Lord who has begun this good work in us bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is actually based upon two different passages, John chapter 1 verse 12 and Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. So already we're we're just we've just finished page 1 of the liturgy and what have we done in the liturgy? We have recited and responded and we've woven into the very fabric of our worship the word of God. And, you know, important passages of it. Now, then we go into what's called the Kyrie. Okay. The Kyrie is based upon Mark chapter 10, verse 47. And we say, in peace, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. So this is based upon Mark 10. Um, For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God, and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. Now, I'm not singing this, but we actually do sing this. For this holy house and all who offer here their worship and praise, let us pray to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. So this Kyrie, um, which goes way, 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 way back 
in uh, in Christian worship. Okay, now if it's uh, you know during Advent and Lent we uh, we admit this next part, but we immediately then you know during the the other parts of the church year we go into what's called the Gloria in Excelsis, or we sing something called This is the Feast. The Gloria in Excelsis, which is glory to God in the highest, is based upon Luke chapter 2, verse 14, and John chapter 1, verse 29. They're, they're woven together here. And we sing this, and it's glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you. We give you thanks. We praise you for your glory. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. For you alone are the Holy One, and you alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. So this little section right here, the Gloria in Excelsis, we act, this is we are singing, literally singing Luke 2.14 and John 1.29. And it's just amazing stuff. So... Tom, one of the reasons why I prefer the liturgy over other forms of worship, especially the free-form praise band version, is because from the very beginning, the flow in the, in the liturgical service in the Lutheran Church begins from God to us. Okay, it begins with God. It's not we're not there to make a sacrifice of praise, and you know, for, and God's not like sitting up there with his arms crossed, going, "I hope you make me happy today." And if you do, maybe I'll bless you with the Holy Spirit. No, it begins we we literally with God. The first thing that happens is is that we confess our sinfulness, and God forgives us, and then from that forgiveness flows, you know, our prayers and our thanksgiving and our hymns which are thanking God for the gifts that he's bestowed on us, the gift of salvation, the gift of the forgiveness of sins, the gift of his word, the gift of his sacraments. And so in the the way we do worship, it's God who is the primary actor, not us. He acts, he gives, we're there to receive. And so it's it's a completely different way of thinking, by the way, too. All right, moving through this here, um, the next part of the uh, of the liturgy is called the salutation and the collect of the day, and it begins by singing Second Timothy chapter four verse twenty two, "The Lord be with you and also with you," and um, and then we do an Old Testament reading. The Psalm is read. We do a, uh, an epistle reading, and believe me when I tell you, you know this is a this is an important part of all, of the sermon is, is the service is that we're getting large portions of God's words. We're not getting a couple of verses, you know, sprinkled out of context to become the sesame seeds on the bun of a of a vegetarian hamburger. No, it ta- it takes a little bit of time to get through these passages. So we got an Old Testament reading, we have a, a reading from the Psalms, we have an epistle, and then we have a reading from the uh, from one of the gospels itself, okay? And so uh during, you know, one of the things we do is when we respond uh, we have the Alleluia. The Alleluia, by the way, is based upon the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 68. And it's Alleluia, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, during Lent, we actually replace that 
with, uh, with another passage from Joel chapter 2, verse 13. It says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and abounding in steadfast love. So again, we're singing large portions of, of Scripture here. It's, it's wonderful that the, the, the Scriptures themselves form the framework and the basis and the foundation for our responses and for what we're hearing. And so then we, uh, we hear a gospel reading, and then we, we have a homily. That's our version of a sermon. And then from there, uh, we go into confessing one of the uh, ecumenical creeds, either the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, which is a very important thing because these are summaries of the Christian faith. Uh, then we have our prayers, we have our offerings, and uh, the offertory um, is based upon Psalm chapter 100, uh, Psalm 116, verses 12 through 13, and verses 17 through 19. And the, the offertory is sung. It, it's what uh, what shall I render uh, uh, to the Lord for all His benefits to me? I will offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call on the name of the Lord. I will take the cup of salvation and will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people in the courts of the uh, Lord's house and in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. So again, we're singing. A large a passage of scripture, and then uh, when we get into the uh, service of uh, the sacraments, uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, it begins with the pastor saying, "The Lord be with you," and we respond, "And also with you." That's from Second Timothy chapter four, verse twenty-two. Lift your uh, lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Colossians three one. Uh, Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give Him thanks and praise. That's Psalm uh, taken from Psalm one hundred and thirty-six. And then we sing uh, something called the Sanctus, which is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, and Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. And it's just, is holy, holy, holy Lord, uh, uh, holy, holy, holy Lord God of uh, power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Hosanna in the highest. So then there's prayer of thanksgiving. We do the Lord's prayer. That's a very important part of our service. And then, uh, you know, and then we receive the Lord's Supper. And then we sing uh, the Agnus Dei, which means Lamb of God. This is taken from John chapter 1, verse 29. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us peace. Grant us peace. So again, why do I prefer liturgical worship? Is because God's word is the very fabric of the worship itself. And it's not some song that was put together on some kid's laptop uh, a week ago that sounds like he could sing it to his girlfriend. No, instead, this is deep scriptural worship. Uh, you know, again, all of our responses and the things that we're singing and praying are all scripture. So, and then, well, let me see if I can find this. Yeah, and then at the very end of the service, or, you know, well, right before the end, we uh, we sing the song called the Nunc Dimittis, which basically is the song of Simeon, which is taken directly from Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. And it says, uh, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. My eyes have seen the salva- the, thy salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of every people, a light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. 
Amen. This is taken taken straight out of uh, the Gospel of Luke. And then at the very end, you know, we end our service with the pastor giving a benediction, which is taken directly from uh, back in one of the books of Moses, Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Again, taken directly out of the scriptures. So, um, now, keep this in mind, okay? I taught at a Southern Baptist church for many years, and uh, I, I, I only quit that gig a couple of years ago. And the order of service was basically you stand up and sing girly praise songs for 30 minutes. Uh, you have announcements, and then you get some kind of a pep talk of a sermon, and then a closing song, and then you're out of there. That's what I experienced. And that is exactly what a lot of what goes on, you know, what's called worship nowadays. And the reason I don't like it is because there's no substance to it. In many of the songs, there isn't enough biblical truth or doctrine in them to fill a gnat's navel. How am I supposed to say amen to something that doesn't even have any truth in it? Whereas in the liturgical service, from beginning to end, you're singing, praying, chanting, repeating God's word. It is the very framework of the worship itself. And I think that provides far a far better framework and understanding for worship itself. There's some meaning to it and everything has a meaning. And I think that's a far superior worship than standing up for 30 minutes, singing girly praise songs and then getting a a self-help pep talk. Just want to keep that in mind. So, um, Tom, to answer your question, you, you wanted me to cite passages that, you know, from using the principle of sola scriptura. I already made it clear that you don't have to worship this way. I just think it's a superior way to worship. Why? Because it's full of God's word. And as somebody who's a pre, who appreciates sola scriptura, I think it's a superior way to do church. All right. So there you go. Oh, and by the way, the liturgy also helps protect you from bad pastors. <laughs> Let me <clears throat> little side note here. Okay, we've all been to those services where the pastor he's an okay guy, he's mediocre and and he's all right. Okay? Every now and then he'll hit a double, but he never hits a home run. You know what I'm talking about. The nice thing about the liturgy is that the pastor isn't the primary actor, it's God. And uh with a 15-minute sermon or homily even if the pastor biffs it, there's so much gospel and so much of God's word in the liturgy that it protects you from the bad pastor. Just wanted to point that out. Okay. Um, let me play this here. Now, this is kind of weird. I was out there researching, getting ready for today's program. When I ran across a uh, <clears throat> a CNN video where Bill Clinton uh, reveals something about himself... And I want to uh, play it for you. And uh, this is former President Bill Clinton. And the, this is um, – he's being interviewed. And the issue at hand is what, what's he – how is he handling being a house husband to the Secretary of State? And um, let me cue this up, and uh, we'll go from there. And 
But you, you, there's a spiritual revelation at the end of this, so hey, stay tuned. Well, with his wife traveling the globe as America's chief diplomat, life has certainly not slowed down much for former President Bill Clinton. In a recent survey, a bunch of women were asked what role Mr. Clinton should take on with his wife now heading the State Department. The now, the Bill Clinton I remember from, uh, from the time he was president, I mean, he would probably be pretty happy if his wife was out of the country. Um, that whole Monica Lewinsky thing, I mean, those kind of little tay-to-tay encounters can be a little embarrassing if your wife's in town. So The answer was, shall we say, somewhat surprising. So I asked the former president for his thoughts on it. U.S. News & World Report this week uh, commissioned a poll, surveyed a bunch of women in America, asking what role you should take on with your wife as Secretary of State. 37%, the greatest number of women said, house husband. <laughs> I wondering what you think about that. I, well, you know, it's funny. I told her when she left that I, that I wish now that I was an ordinary citizen because I wish I could go with her and be there when she comes home at night and do for her what she did for me when I was president. But it's not in the cards. I'm, we're doing the best. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. We can to work through this and do the right thing. Would you ever be comfortable being a house husband? No, I have to go to work. I'm, I'm too much of a Calvinist. If I don't work every day, I get nervous. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently Bill Clinton's a Calvinist. <sighs> uh, yeah, he's a Calvinist. I don't think he knows what tulip is. I, I think he would think tulips are, are the things that he kisses on the women that uh, he sees. But anyway, um, so and how did he define Calvinism as somebody who works hard? So good to know you Calvinists out there, the thing you're known for as far as Bill Clinton is concerned, you're hardworking people. Isn't that great? I mean, how do you know you're a Calvinist? Well, you wake up and you go to the office every day and you work hard. Completely ignorant. Uh, definition of Calvinism. Kind of sad. Kind of sad. Anyway, I just had to play that for you because it falls into the very bizarre <laughs> category for today. Okay, hang on a second here. <clears throat> Grabbing the next thing here. Now, I am the curator of the Museum of Idolatry. You can find the Museum of Idolatry at a littleleaven.com. And it, believe me when I tell you, it's a depressing website. And sometimes I put exhibits in the Museum of, of Idolatry that are on the border. They're on the fence. They can kind of go one way or another. And the, again, my big the, the axe that I want to grind is the gospel. That's my, that, I'm always looking for ways to grind that axe. And what's funny is, is that sometimes I'll put exhibits up in the Museum of Idolatry, really not knowing what kind of response I'm going to get from people. I'll say something or I'll frame it in such a way that you, you the responses actually become educational. This is exactly what's happening with this particular exhibit. I put an exhibit up that says Sermon Central has zero sermons on the gospel. Now, somebody sent me an email a couple of days ago with a screenshot from Sermon Central from their search page, and they they have a pull-down menu that you can look on. You can actually search their uh their website, Sermon Central, which is one of the largest repositories of sermons on the internet for those of you pastors who just don't want to go through all that trouble of actually pulling out the Bible and, you know, reading it, translating it, coming up with something meaningful to say, you can go to SermonCentral.com and rip off people to your heart's content. So it's a big repository of sermons. And so um, the problem is, is that on their search page, 
when you look under the topics, gospel is not one of the topics for a sermon. It's not. It you know, it's, hey, look, Mom, no gospel. Yeah, that's right. One of the largest repositories of sermons on the planet has zip, zero, nada sermons on the topic gospel. If you do a search at Sermon Central by topic, the core message of the Christian faith itself, the gospel, is not even a topic that you can do a search on. I think that's embarrassing. So what happened is I put this up there and... Uh, you know, and I asked the question, do you, do you think that maybe so-called Christian pastors nowadays are too preoccupied on preaching anything but the gospel? Which, by the way, if, you're, if you've listened to this program with any frequency whatsoever, uh, then you, you, you actually know what I'm talking about here. There's a lot of people who seem to talk about the gospel but never tell you what it is. They'll say the word, but he, at Sermon Central, it's not even a topic. But... What's even more educational is, is that I've actually received some comments from people who say, well, you're just nitpicking because you can do a search on, on grace and, and grace will come up. You can do a search on salvation and salvation will come up. You know, it's just you're being nitpicky. And you know what? That's funny is, is that the gospel is the very truth that we are to proclaim that Christ died for our sins. That he was raised again on the third day for our justification, according to the scriptures, right? This is what the scripture says the gospel is. Paul, when he was writing to the Roman church, these are Christians. He said that he, he was looking forward to preaching the gospel to them. That's what Paul said. Yet, at SermonCentral.com, one of the world's largest repositories of Christian sermons, gospel isn't even a topic I do think that's a symptom and a sign of what's gone wrong with Christianity today here in America. And I don't think I'm being nitpicky and I don't equate the gospel a sermon that is on the gospel to be the same as a sermon on salvation. Although the two are closely linked, there is a difference between the two and we have to keep that in mind. Anyway, if you want to you know, sound off. What do you think about this? You know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear it. You know, so I, KJ wrote, he says, while you're technically correct, you haven't represented Sermon Central fairly. The site does allow one to search for salvation, sin, repentance, and grace. But if you type gospel into the search mode, you will find 906 references. Right. You can actually, you know, but it's not an official topic. You could type in the word gospel and it'll key in, you know, on 906 references. Out of the tens of thousands of sermons that they have there, 906? Anyway, he says, uh, so, you know, that's one person who said that I was being picky. And uh, and somebody said, you know, there's 900 sermons in the salvation section. That's good enough for me. But see, I, that's not good enough for me. The gospel is different than salvation. The two are linked. But, and there basically you can't tear them apart but there's a big difference paul said he wanted to preach the gospel to the church of rome wanted to preach the gospel all right well let's see here what do i want to do you know what i'm going to do i'm going to take our second break a couple of minutes early so that i can dedicate the opening section of the second hour to dealing with and addressing the golden calf issue 
over at uh, or the Golden Calf question over at uh, Tim Stevens's blog. Tim Stevens is one of the pastors over at Granger Community Church, uh, and we're going to. Uh, Take a look at some of the things that were, he said, and we're going to compare it to the Word of God because that's what we do here. So, if you'd like to email me, let me know if you think that uh, that if you think there's a problem with the fact that Sermon Central, the topic gospel, is not something that's an official topic for all of these sermons. I, I, I think there's something wrong with it, but you know, maybe I'm just being nitpicky. You never know. But uh, anyway, so uh, e- you can email me at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com and we'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. This month's Pirate Christian Radio Book of the Month for March is Theologia et Apologia. This important book gathers together 18 essays written by some of today's top biblical and Reformation scholars, including Michael Horton, Adam Francisco, Angus Manouge, John Warwick Montgomery, Craig Parton, Kim Riddlebarger, and R.C. Sproul. Collectively, the essays in this book teach and defend biblical theology, especially that articulated during the time of the Reformation. They address topics including the case for biblical inerrancy, a Christian critique in response to Islam, repentance, a defense of sola scriptura, and much, much more. This little-known theological treasure is a welcome addition to the library of any thinking Christian. You can purchase Theologia et Apologia at piratechristianradio.com. Click on the store link. The book only costs $38 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds help to continue to bring Pirate Christian Radio to you. So visit piratechristianradio.com and purchase your copy today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, hour number two. Tim Stevens asked the question over his blog, Are we fashioning a golden calf to give people what they want? 
Tim is responding to the controversy over their sex for sale sermon series marketing pieces that have gone out. In fact, uh, I'm in the. There's so many of these churches, these purpose driven churches are doing sex sermons right now. You think these guys are, you know, crazy as a March hare. You know, it's just crazy. I mean, it, spring is in the air, and all, all these guys want to do is talk about sex. And uh, I'm thinking next week we might actually review one of these sex sermons, but I'm trying to find one that's uh, not quite as PG-13. And that's a little bit of a challenge right now, to be honest with you. Anyway, so Tim Stevens, uh, who is one of the pastors there at uh, Granger Community Church, who's written the book Pop Goes the Church, uh, where he tries to, tries, tries to give a defense of uh, mixing, you know, using pop culture to uh, reach people with uh, Christianity. I don't really... I, I notice this in Christianity, not the gospel. There's a difference there. Anyway, uh, somebody named Aaron had had gone on to Tim Stevens's blog and left this comment: "Quote: The church is called to preach Christ and Him crucified for you." Sounds like somebody who's been listening to Pirate Christian Radio. <laughs> and he says, "A topic on sex is nothing but a marketing scheme or gimmick to attract a crowd. If the forgiveness of sins is not preached, then church is preaching another gospel, and that is a counterfeit gospel. I'm convinced that Granger is fashioning a golden calf to give the people what they want instead of what they need. We sinners need Christ and him crucified. If Christ isn't preached, then all of the pastor's work at Granger's at Granger is worthless." Okay, so what was he responding to? He was leaving a comment regarding the postcard, the 80,000 postcards that were sent to the poor, unsuspecting people of Granger, Indiana, um, that, you know, with the message of sex for sale. Are you buying it? Anyway, so Tim Stevens defended this mailer. And he said, preaching the forgiveness of sins to an empty auditorium isn't nearly as effective as to a room full of people. So his justification is is that they're sending out these sex-for-sale postcards, and the idea is that they're going to fill an auditorium because people are going to come to church because of the sex-for-sale which makes me makes me want to pause for a second and say, listen to what I just said. <laughs> a bunch of unchurched people are going to want to come to church because they saw a postcard that said sex for sale. Let that one sink in. So Tim is basically defending. This is the ends justifies the means um, argument. Preaching the forgiveness of sins to an empty auditorium isn't nearly as effective as to a room full of people. If we were talking about a a poor village in India, you wouldn't go in and stand on a stump and preach Christ and him crucified. Why? They wouldn't hear you. They're hungry. They need medical attention. They need clean water. You would show them the love of Jesus by meeting their physical needs first, and then they would be open to your preaching uh, to this God of love that you talked about. He continues, it is the same in our culture. We earn the right to be heard by helping people with their needs. They need help with their marriage or their kids or their money or, yes, even their sex life. The Bible says so much about all of these areas. Once we help them with their felt needs, we have captured their attention and we can preach Christ and him crucified. What are your thoughts? (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, man. There's a problem here. Okay. Number one, did you catch the premise? Now, what's a premise? This is what is assumed in his answer. Okay. Did you catch his premise, what he is assuming about church? Okay. That church is an evangelistic outreach whereby by meeting the felt needs of people in the community, we can then preach the gospel to them. Is that what the church is? Is that what the Bible teaches church is for? Is church primarily for reaching the community in an evangelistic effort? Is that what the church gathers to do? Okay. The answer to that question is no. And that's not my opinion. That's what God's word teaches. Okay. Now, I'm going to back it, you know, back this up with a few things. Now, let me remind you all. Okay. Why? Because it, I'm not trying to pour salt into a wound here. I know it sometimes it seems like I'm piling on in the, in, in a way like that, but that, okay. I'm going to make this claim and I'm going to, I'm not trying to pull a punch. I'm not trying to pour salt into a wound. I'm trying to make a valid point. Okay. Tim Stevens, one of the pastors at Granger Community Church has just justified sending out 80,000 postcard mailers that say sex for sale by basically claiming that it, this is the same as going into a town in India and feeding them and clothing them before you give them the gospel. So what this whole sermon series is about is about meeting the felt needs of the people in Granger, Indiana uh, regarding their sex lives. And then by helping them with their sex life, we're going to give, we're going to have the right then to teach them about Christ. Okay. He says, once we've captured their attention, we can preach Christ and him crucified. The problem is, is that Granger really doesn't do a good job of doing that. Okay. Why do I say that? Because the reveal now survey results prove it. Again, let me remind you of their reveal now results. 47% of the people who attend Granger Community Church don't believe in salvation by grace. How is that possible? It can only be possible by the fact that they are not really preaching Christ and him crucified to the people that they've captured their attentions. Okay. 57% of the people at Granger don't believe in the authority of the Bible. 57%. That's almost two thirds. Don't believe in the authority of the Bible. 56. Don't believe Jesus is the only way to eternal life. How is that possible? How is that possible? Well, it sounds to me like the people in, you know, the unchurched people in Granger, Indiana are basically just showing up there to get their felt's need, needs met, and they are not really interested in that Christ crucified for sins stuff. And Granger really isn't doing a very good job of actually preaching Christ crucified for sins once they gather the crowd of people there. You know, and now they're gonna, basically there's going to be a lot of people coming to church at Granger because they heard there was sex for sale there. Man, just ridiculous. Anyway, coming back to my original point. Church is not for evangelism, okay? I'm going to I want to take you to a passage of scripture and I want you to see what happens in this. This is Acts chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, okay? And I want you to listen. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, okay? 
In Acts chapter 13, it begins with telling us that there was a church in Antioch. In that church, there were prophets and teachers. Okay? By the way, the gift of teaching and the gift of prophecy are gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to people. And we learn from 1 Corinthians 14 that the purpose of these spiritual gifts is for the building up and the strengthening of the church. Who is the church? Believers. Okay? The ecclesia, those who are called out. Okay? So if you have the gift of prophecy or the gift of teaching, you are to practice your gift in church for the building up and the strengthening of believers in the faith. Okay? So we we learn that in Antioch, there were people who had the gift of prophecy and teaching, and among them were Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. I'm going to point something out. This is a very important verse, and it gives us a real good peek into the life of the early church. In the church, they were worshiping the Lord. They fasted. They prayed. We will learn from another passage in uh, Acts that they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayer and the fellowship. Okay, And here in the church of Antioch, notice that the Holy Spirit did not say, all right, chuck this whole prayer and fasting bit. You're not meeting the felt needs of the of the unchurched people in Antioch. You need to change up your service and stop being so selfish and make it a place where they will feel comfortable to come and meet their felt needs so that they can uh so that they will come to church. It doesn't say that. No, instead, it says the Holy Spirit said set apart for me these men whom I, you know, for the work I've called them to, and then the church sent them out. Church is not for unbelievers. Church is for believers. And evangelism occurs when the, a church sends out mature disciples of Jesus Christ. That's out into the world to preach the gospel. Okay. So that's how biblical evangelism occurs. It's when disciples go out. Now, the gathering of the body of Christ, that's believers, not a gathering for unbelievers. It's gathering for believers to be fed the word of God and the sacraments. Church is a family gathering, and that is an important part of how God makes mature, biblically literate disciples. Unbelievers may attend church if they want, um, but the meeting is not for them. They are neither family members, that is Christians, nor are they disciples. They're neither, okay? Those are people who might be just investigating, wanting to know more about what Christianity is about. But the church service is not for them, and they shouldn't feel comfortable there because it's not for them. We do strange things there. So biblically, church is for believers, and evangelism occurs when God, you know, when believers go or are sent out of the church to reach unbelievers with the gospel. Okay. Now, um, looking at my notes here. There are two other passages I'd like you to consider, okay? Actually, more than that. First of all, 
coming back to one of our favorite passages here at Fighting for the Faith, especially in light of this current methodological heresy called the Seeker-Sensitive Purpose-Driven Movement, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to young Pastor Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Job of pastors is to preach the word, okay? To correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instructions. A couple of other passages. Now, I told you in Acts chapter 2, it's actually 2 verse 42, we get a very good peek into the early life of the New Testament churches. In fact, one of the earliest churches found in the New Testament is the one that's in Jerusalem right after the day of Pentecost. And it says, they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. That's the content of their church services. Fellowship, apostles' teaching, breaking of bread and prayers. So from the beginning of the church age, believers gathered on a regular basis to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of prayer, uh, breaking of bread and prayers. And these activities were done in addition to any personal devotion that believers may have had along, uh, dur- had alone during the week. And scripture clearly instructs believers not to neglect the gathering together. By the way, okay, there's a passage of scripture that tells believers not to neglect gathering together. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. The inspired author of Hebrews writes, he says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, for all the more as you see the day is drawing near. Again, the clear teaching of Scripture is that that the gathering of the church is the gathering of believers to feed on God's word and the Lord's supper. And this gathering is a family meeting and is not for unbelievers. And we are not to neglect this meeting further. Uh, this regular gathering of church is where apostles, the apostles fulfilled their mandate given to them by Jesus Christ to go and make disciples, learners of all nations, teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded them. So the problem with Tim Stevens is, is that he's working from a wrong set of assumptions. His assumption is, is that you can change the nature of church and you can make a church service for unbelievers. You can't. They're neither believers. They're not, they're not, they're not family members. They're not, they're not Christians. They're not disciples. Okay. And church is not evangelism. Evangelism is when the family gathers together, uh, when the, when Christians are sent out into the world. That's where we go fishing, outside of the church. You go into the mission field every single Sunday when you leave the building. You are being sent out as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, the gospel, and, the, and you've been given the ministry of reconciliation to proclaim that God has made peace through everybody through his blood. Okay? But you're not to change your church into a place where Unbelievers are having their felt needs met. That's not the same. No. In fact, church cannot be changed that way. So the answer to the question, are they fashioning a golden calf? Yeah, they are, because they're giving people 
what they want. And you can't do that at church. You have to give people not not just what they need. You have to give them what God's word has instructed us to give them. That's Christ and him crucified and to give them the word of God and to give them the Lord's Supper. It's peculiar, strange stuff that, that is not very appealing to uh, unbelievers. In fact, if Joel Osteen were to properly preach law and gospel and, and, the, and the Lord's Supper, the compact center would be emptied within a matter of weeks. No one would be showing up anymore. <laughs> Just something to think about. All right, we're going to move on to our sermon review. And our sermon review is on baggage. Did you know that you have baggage? Well, apparently we all have baggage. Did Jesus come to solve the baggage problem that you have? Well, it depends on how you're defining baggage. If you're defining baggage as every day I am guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments, I am guilty of sinning against a holy and just God. I don't just have baggage. I'm shot through and through with sin. And I'm in need of a savior, not somebody who's going to who's going to just lift this baggage off of me, but who's definitively solved the sin baggage problem altogether by by atoning for my baggage. Doesn't even sound right when you try it that way. But so it all depends on how you define baggage. Well, we're going to be listening to a sermon from the orchard uh, in Scott Hodge. Remember, Scott Hodge is a uh, young pastor there in uh, Illinois and at this orchard fellowship or whatever. And uh, it's kind of one of these purpose-driven church-type places. And he's considered a thought leader among these church planter types. And, you know, sticking to his guns, he's, you know, his website is in the top 60 of Christian, top 60 Christian websites on the internet. He, this guy's a mover and a shaker. You know, he has influence. People want to hear what he has to say. So let's, uh, let's listen into uh, Scott Hodges' baggage sermon and ask yourself the question is he properly diagnosing the problem that we humans have when it comes to our relationship or our standing before a holy and just god remember that the god who thundered from mount sinai let's find out this podcast is a production of the orchard a church community located in aurora illinois whose mission is leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at orchardvalleyonline.com. Well, hey, we're in a new series. Today begins called Baggage. Turn to the person next to you and say, Baggage. Speaking. If I was there, I would have said cabbage just to be ornery. Because that's how I am. Of baggage. I I was reminded uh, of a time long, long ago... Uh, when, you know, jumping in the car, hopping on an airplane and just getting away for a few days with my wife, well, it was a pretty simple task because I mean, for the most part, it's pretty much just me, her, uh, one, maybe, maybe two bags, you know, a few changes of clothes, uh, uh, you know, a couple of books, maybe a laptop, a couple DVDs. I mean, it was pretty, pretty simple. He's actually talking about literal baggage. But then... We had children. <laughs> That's right. Not one, not two, three, three children. And now, okay, as many of you can relate to, travel has become a bit more uh, complicated. 
Complicated. That's a good word. Yeah. See, because now instead of just, you know, one bag or two, now it's, uh, well, let's see here. Uh, oh, okay. Well, we've got, uh, we've got Elisa's bag, which is pretty light because she tends to forget everything at home. And then we've got, uh, oh, <laughs> Julia's bag. <laughs> Let's see what else here. I'm assuming based upon the pauses and the sounds that we're getting is that he's laying out different types of literal baggage. Oh, here we go. We have got, uh, oh, uh, you got to have one of these. I don't even know what you call these. Pack and play. Got to have the pack and play, right? And um, this pack and play actually ran over with the car about three days ago. Oh, and then you've got to have, you cannot go on a trip with your kids without having a bag of toys. You got to have a bag of toys, okay? Because those kids, you know, they get, they get bored easily, right? Um, and then, uh, oh, you've got, hold on a second. Oh, Amanda's bag? <laughs> Over here. And uh, then I've got mine. Where's mine? Oh, here's mine. Mine. Yeah. <laughs> Very simple, right? In fact, I was, uh, I was reminded of the complexities of travel with my kids. A couple months ago, we took a road trip. Uh, up to, uh, I say, fa- it's actually called a family trip, not a vacation. It's a big difference. Okay, vacation, let me tell you what vacation is. Vacation is me and my wife on a beach. You bring the kids, it's not vacation, it's a family trip. Big difference. So, we're going up to Minnesota for a family trip. And uh, so we got everything loaded up and... It was quite an ordeal. In fact, I think we have a photo. I want to show you. We packed everything up and took a nice picture. Look at this. It was was special. It took us a while to get there, but we made it. Perhaps perhaps some of you can, can relate. Just wondering what passage of Scripture this sermon is based on. Um, The Book of Baggage, Chapter 2. You know, uh, it's funny because the bottom line is, as the as the family grows, so does the baggage, right? And and of course, uh, not only does the baggage grow, but so do the costs. Because see, now you need a bigger car, right? You need a bigger van. You need a for some of you a bigger semi trailer, right? Or and then of course you got the cost of a larger hotel room. You got the cost of 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 checking more bags at the airport nowadays, right? More kids. Well, if you fly southwest, you don't have that problem. I like southwest, by the way. Equals more baggage. More baggage means the higher the costs. And guess what? The same is true in our lives when it comes to baggage. And, of course, the kind of baggage that I'm talking about is the type of baggage that we oftentimes don't always recognize as... Okay, we've now segued from... Real baggage, and I guess the punchline there was is that the more baggage you have, the more expensive it is and the bigger toll it takes on you. And now we've segued into uh, psychological baggage. 
I'm not sure yet. Baggage. I mean, think about how this works in our lives, okay? Uh, you know, when we're young, we're living this pretty idealistic life. Things are going pretty good. But then, over time, things happen. We get hurt. All right, we, we experience pain. We experience relational troubles with girlfriends, boyfriends, husbands, wives. Okay, hold on a second here. I'm going to write these down. We experience pain, emotional troubles in relationships. Okay. Now notice, I just want to bring this out. This is a Christian church. Okay, so this, not sure what Christianity has to do with emotional and relationship pain slash baggage, but all right, all right, here we go. Friends, maybe it's a betrayal of trust. Okay, betrayal of trust. So you got emotional relationship problems, betrayal of trust, and pain. The next thing we know, we find ourselves carrying relational baggage. Okay, relational baggage. All right. Or how about in times in life when, when all of a sudden we experience tragedy? Or are we, we see that. Okay, and tragedy. Relational baggage and tragedy. I mean, these all sound like things that happened to me. Okay. That something's about to happen, and so we pray and we beg God and ask Him to please keep it from happening. And yet it happens anyway. Seems like over time, maybe it's having a bad church experience or, or having just whatever kind of issues. And we, start, we find ourselves... A bad church experience. Hang on, writing this down. Bad church experience. Okay. Starting to get angry and bitter towards God, towards religion. And before we know it, we find ourselves... Okay, so now I'm angry and bitter towards God. Okay. Just, I'm just writing down the problems. that he. I mean, this is the problem that we're, we're trying to solve here with this baggage sermon. Carrying around religious baggage. Okay, so we got relational baggage. We have religious baggage. Okay. A lot of people have religious baggage. And then sometimes because that pain is very real, because that pain really hurts, we begin to rely on all kinds of different things to help temporarily relieve that pain. So, so things like before we know it, we find ourselves, you know, diving into things like drugs and alcohol and sex and eating and shopping, whatever it might be. Okay, so in order to uh, fix the pain of my relational baggage and my religious baggage, uh, drugs... Alcohol, self-medicating with drugs, alcohol, and sex. In my case, it would be food. All right, okay, go on. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves carrying around the baggage of addiction. Okay, so we got a, a, addiction baggage. Okay, baggage. I just, I'm just writing all this down to, to document this so that we, we're sure that we, we're getting the correct diagnosis of our problem when it's you know, a human problem with God. Maybe it's emotional baggage. Oh, there's another one. Emotional baggage. Okay, hang on. Emotional. Maybe it's, it's, it's physical baggage. Oh, I got that. I'm overweight. Okay, physical baggage. Okay, so we got emotional baggage, physical baggage. We have religious baggage, relational baggage, and addiction baggage. And see, what happens is when we're young, uh, we, we don't always feel it. We don't always recognize it. But then we start growing up. And maybe it's, it happens when we're in our teens. Maybe it happens as young adults. We're in our 20s, 30s. 
So we go from being baggage-free to having baggage. Or maybe even older, in your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, and all of a sudden you realize that you have issues. Okay, so now I have issues. So baggage, does baggage equal issues, or does issues come about as a result of baggage? You realize that you have baggage. The problem is, is that so often, instead of dealing with that baggage, instead of confronting the baggage that you're carrying in your life... Okay, hold on a second. He's kind of hinting at a solution here. So... Solu- possible solution to my baggage problem is to confront baggage. So I got to, because it's, okay, which means it sounds like baggage is something separate than I, than me. Because okay, I, if I can confront it, then it isn't me. It's something that's, a t- okay. Instead, what happens is we have, we have this tendency to compensate for it or to try to compensate for it or to. Tr- okay. So bad thing. You don't want to compensate for baggage. You want to confront it. Compensation, bad. All right, hang on. Writing this down. Just want to make sure we're getting all of this. Try to cover it up and and hide it, or or sometimes. Okay, so no cover ups and don't hide the baggage. No cover up. So don't cover up your baggage. That's bad. Okay. As we even try our best to pretend that it's not even there. Okay, so we got denial. Denial is not a uh, a way of correctly dealing with baggage. And yet, no matter how hard we try. The baggage is still there. So even if I confront the baggage, and and let's see, we're talking, we we have relationship baggage, we have religious baggage, we've got addiction baggage, emotional baggage, and um, yeah, physical baggage. All right, so we got, and, but, so even if I confront my baggage, I'm, no matter what I do, it's still going to be there. But the wrong thing to do, even though you can't get rid of it, is compensate, try to compensate for it, cover it up, um, or try to deny it. Okay, this this is just his words, just a summary of the problem he's presenting. And so we begin going through life with baggage. Which I'm assuming is bad. Except the problem is, is that when we don't deal with the baggage, suddenly we all of a sudden find ourselves with another piece of baggage. So baggage can procreate, <laughs> multiply. So if you you got to deal with it, so you got to deal with baggage, or it uh, or it gets bigger. And, and then what happens is we, we go through life and we experience a little bit more pain. So you might so baggage causes pain. A little more hurt. Just a little bit more, though. A little more pain. What if you got, like, a high threshold for pain? I mean, you, can, you, you, you might have better baggage tolerance than other people, right? Next thing we know, we have even more baggage. And, and then we try our hardest to start walking through life and we try to pretend that nothing's wrong. But all of a sudden, we begin to feel that baggage. It begins to impact our relationships. Okay, that, that would be bad. So you, so baggage can impact your relationships. That, that would be bad. Okay, you don't want your baggage getting in the way of your relationships, especially if you ha- already have relationship baggage that's causing you to have addiction baggage, which could cause emotional baggage, which if you, in my case, if you overeat, you can get physical baggage from it too. It begins to impact our marriages. 
Okay, so bad impact on marriage. Because it impacts how we treat our children. Sometimes it even begins to impact how we view God and our relationship with him. Okay, so so it, it, it can cause relationship problems with, between you and your wife or you and your husband, you and your kids, and, and you and God. So baggage can do that. Before we know it, man, life just becomes hard. And this baggage, it just gets heavier and heavier, and we get more and more exhausted and tired and worn. So you get tired. Okay, so you got, we got more pain, more multiplied baggage. It's heavier and heavier. And but thankfully, there's a God. Okay, so okay, so here's the solution to the my. I didn't realize I had all this baggage. Okay, wow. Okay, so I got baggage. So God is the solution now to baggage. Okay, hang on. I, I, these are my sermon notes. Who loves us? Okay, so God loves us, and who sees our baggage? Okay, so God sees baggage. Got it. And who says to us, "Come to me." All who are weary and burdened. Okay. Burdened with what? Baggage? The way you've described baggage, Pastor Scott, it doesn't exactly, it's not exactly synonymous with sin and rebellion against God. That's kind of the problem, though. I mean, would you say that if you have relationship baggage... Okay, you've 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 been betrayed. You have you've had emotion. You've had emotional problems. Been betrayed by somebody. You had a bad church experience, and you have relationship baggage, and you have religious baggage. Does that say anything about your sin and rebellion against God? No, it just basically makes it sound like you're some kind of a drive-by baggage victim. You know, you would have been fine if it wasn't for the fact that somebody screwed you over. And I will give you rest. So God's going to give us rest from our baggage problem. You see, God is ready to claim our baggage. Okay, so God wants to claim our baggage. So God's like the the guy at the airport, right? The one who you know, the curbside check-in guy. So God is like just waiting for you to drive up. And he's going to check your baggage. We just have to be willing to let it go. Okay, so God wants it. God wants baggage. We have to be willing. We willing to let it go. Okay, so that's what I got to do. You want to get rid of your baggage, you just need to be willing to let it go. And so that's what these next six weeks are all about. You're going to talk about baggage for six weeks? Oh, man. Remind me not to listen for the next six weeks. Learning how to surrender and how to let go of our baggage. So they're going to spend six weeks training you how to let go of your baggage. Wow. Now, now I know that there are probably some of us when... When we hear about a series called Baggage, we, we get a little bit nervous. Or, or we even get anxious just over the series itself because, because, I mean, think about it. First of all, you really can't do a series like this without having to get open and, and honest with yourself. 
I have to get honest with myself. The, the reason why this makes me nervous is it just sounds psych. It's pop psych. I mean, this is just the kind of series where you really begin to look at yourself and, and all of a sudden you find yourself in this vulnerable place before God and maybe even before others. And so I think it's probably a good thing to remind ourselves of a couple things right here at the very beginning of this series. I think for one, it's important to remember that not only are you a part of a community full of people who are all dealing with their own types of baggage. I mean, I mean actually, just for a second, turn to the person next to you and just ask them, what's your baggage? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Stop. Stop. You guys were actually going to do that. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'll tell you what her baggage is, okay? I got a long list of baggage. <laughs> we don't want to break up marriages or relationships here, okay? That would really work against the whole thing of what we're really trying to do, okay? So, <laughs> so I mean, I think it's important that we remind ourselves that we're surrounded by people. We all have baggage. Okay, we are now 10 minutes and 20 seconds into the sermon. 10 minutes and 20 seconds. God's word has not shown up yet. Jesus Christ is AWOL. And the problem that he's presented sounds like psychobabble and is, doesn't accurately describe our problem. Now, if you're going to use the baggage metaphor, I mean, let's come on. Let's preach the law here. Okay? You don't love God with all of your heart. You got baggage. You are in rebellion to God. You don't love God with all your heart, mind, and strength. You are, you are, talk about the baggage. You got truckloads of sin. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. You steal, you kill, you destroy, you murder, you commit adultery, you gossip, you slander. You see, that's some serious stuff there. And you are the one doing it. This isn't stuff that happened to you. This is a truckload of baggage. Every single sin that you've committed is like a little piece of garbage that you've stuck into that suitcase. You see the difference here? I have baggage. You have baggage. You may not think you have baggage, but I promise if you stick with it for six weeks, you will discover that you have baggage. And the other thing is, is that, you know, it only took me, what, two minutes to talk about sin baggage and everyone listening knows that they've got baggage when it comes to their sin and their guilt before God is that not only are we surrounded by others who have baggage, but when you open up the scriptures, what you find is that it seems like some of the greatest heroes in the scriptures. I mean, some of the people that it seemed like God used the most were people who had a heck of a lot of baggage in their lives. (sighs) The reason, see that this is why the metaphor is breaking down. You, you haven't correctly defined baggage as our sin and our rebellion against God. Okay. And the reason why all of the people in the new, in the old Testament and, uh, and even in the new Testament are so screwed up is because they're sinners. They sin. Ah. <sighs> But the difference was, was not only did they realize they had baggage. What? Where does it say that any of the people in the Old Testament stories realized they had baggage? But they were willing to confront the baggage. Really? They were willing to confront the baggage. Let me give you one example here. David, out for a stroll. Time of war. The men of the town are gone. He's up on the roof, and there's a woman bathing, and she's naked. 
And boy, is she hot. He wants to meet her. He wines her. He dines her. And then he does her. She gets pregnant. David's got some baggage going on right here. And he's about ready to have his baggage increase. Does David confront his baggage? Does he deal with his baggage? Oh, no, no, no. He decides he's going to go the cover-up route. And the way he's going to do it is he invites Bathsheba's husband back into town, liquors him up, expects him to go home and take his liberties with his wife, but he has greater character than he than, than King David because he does he refuses to spend time with his wife because all of his buddies and fellow soldiers are out at war right now and they can't be with their wives, so he's not going to be with his. David's solution to this little problem, because he was thinking, you know what, just let, you know, have the guy sleep with his wife. You know, you know, it'll only add up to eight months rather than nine. Who cares? He'll never know the difference, even though the baby will always have the same nose as the king. Anyway, um, so David's solution is he has him murdered. And after he has him murdered, so we got, we got an illegitimate child. We have adultery. We have murder. And all this baggage, did David confront his baggage? No. Nathan the prophet was sent by God to have a little chat with King David. And God confronts David with his baggage. They were willing to be honest about the baggage. Kind of sounds stupid what he just said, doesn't it? After you know what the Bible does teach. How about uh, Abraham? You know Abraham? Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. He lied about his wife two times. Oh, she's my sister, you know, to protect himself, right? His son Isaac did the same thing. They didn't deal with that baggage. How about Moses? He was a murderer. He murdered an Egyptian. He murdered an Egyptian slave master, and then he was a fugitive from the law. If they had television back in those days, Moses would have been on Egypt's Most Wanted. The Egyptian FBI would have a photograph of Moses at their post office. Did he confront that baggage? I don't recall any passages of scripture where Moses confronts his murder baggage. A great example, a guy named Job. (laughs) Job confronted his baggage. Job got zapped by Satan, lost everything. (sighs) In fact, there's this one time where Job just gets utterly honest before God. He doesn't tell us anything about Job. He hasn't told us anything about Job. And he says these words, Job 7, verse 11. He says, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. That's because Satan took everything from Job. Job was reduced to nothing. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his home. He lost everything. Even lost his health. He became literally a piece of human debris. And he was still alive. As you continue to read the scriptures, you see another guy, a guy by the name of David. Okay, David is known as a man after God's own heart. Didn't we just talk about David's... Did he confront his baggage? 
And he gets totally honest before God. I mean, he cries out in his anguish, his pain. And he says this in Psalm 109, 22. I am poor and needy, and my heart is full of pain. Why is he picking verses out of context that make it sound like that David was dealing with psychological baggage rather than his sin? So the invitation to you and to me and to all of us who are feeling the weight and the burden of baggage is once again from the words, from the mouth of (sighs) Jesus, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Worried, uh, Wearied and burdened by their sin, by the weight of the law. When the law does its work, it kills us and creates a load that we cannot carry. We cannot please God through our own righteousness. We can't do the law perfectly or enough or be righteous enough to save ourselves. And Christ is offering to carry that burden for us because he took the heavy weight of our sins upon himself and died for our sins on the cross. But again, the metaphor here for baggage does not fit with sin. So how about you? Are you ready to surrender your baggage? Oh, man. What does he expect me to do? <laughs> I, you're right, Pastor. I have baggage. I, I was in an emotional relationship, and I was betrayed, and I was abused at a church, and now I have religious baggage, and now I have a food addiction. <laughs> I want to just get real. Because over these next six weeks, I, I really think God is going to help us. He's going to give us strength to take steps forward in our lives to release all the stuff that tends to weigh us down and to slow us down. And so, so are you ready? Are you willing to surrender that baggage? I'm willing to confess my sins and receive the pronouncement that my sins have been forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross. I thrive Because I can go to Christ, my Savior, and confess my sins and know that they are atoned for by Jesus Christ. That I am forgiven and made right before God, not because of me being willing to confront or deal with my baggage, but because he dealt with my sin definitively by dying on the cross for it. Big difference, by the way. Well, if you are, I want to I give you a couple things to write down that I think will help you today. If you have your service guide, would you take that out? I'm going to give you three things to write down. There's three prayers that I want to share with you today. In fact, these are, these are very simple prayers that, that I actually, a friend of mine by the name of Craig Rochelle spoke about a while back, and it just resonated with me. I wanted to share them with you today. And, and these are the kind of prayers that I just think are going to be so essential for us if we truly are going to deal with the baggage that we're, de- that we're carrying in our lives. So we got three prayers he's going to give us that are going to help us deal with our baggage. Lovely. I mean, these are the kind of prayers that will bring freedom, whether you're dealing right now. So they're like magic spells? Uh, maybe you're dealing with a baggage of regret. Oh, the, there's regret baggage. Maybe you're dealing with the baggage of pride. Maybe oh, pride baggage. <laughs> Isn't. Pride of sin. Oh. Maybe for you it's depression 
Oh, yeah, because, you know, chemically imbalanced depression baggage. Maybe it is religious baggage that you're dealing with. Maybe, I mean, whatever it might be, these are prayers that are going to help us. And so I want to give you the first one to write down. How about the prayer? Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? It's a great story. It's found in Luke, I think, chapter 18. Doing this from memory here. Uh, two, Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Remember back in those days, tax collectors were only slightly better uh, than prostitutes, and that was just for the fact that they were men rather than women. <laughs> kind of tells you what, how they valued things in that society. So the Pharisee prays about himself, Lord, I thank you that I am so wonderful and that I am so religious and that I tithe even to a tenth of my spices and I thank you that I am not like that tax collector over there. Oh, wonderful me. That's the Roseboro paraphrase. The tax collector can't even raise his eyes to heaven. He's burdened deeply by his sin. He realizes he cannot please God. He is guilty before a just God, and he knows that he has earned hell. And the prayer that he prays, not that the prayer itself did it, Because the prayer shows that God was working in his life to grant him repentance and faith. Repentance and faith in a merciful God. A merciful God who saves even sinners like tax collectors by dying on the cross for their sins. So the tax collector can't even look up to heaven. He's so embarrassed. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that tax collector that day went away justified, declared to be righteous, debt canceled, paid in full by God. Now that's a prayer that can release baggage. But it doesn't do it. God does. We continue. Let's see how his three prayers compare to that. And uh, we're going to pray together in a second. The prayer is very simple. It's this right here. God, help renew my mind with truth. (sighs) Okay, so, okay. God, help renew my mind. And that's a decent prayer, by the way. God, help renew my mind with truth. Lord, sanctify me in your truth, thy word is truth. So you want to uh, you want to be sanctified, you want your mind renewed, get into your scripture, get your nose in the book, read it, mark it, inwardly digest it. That's funny that he would pray this considering the fact that at this point we haven't had enough of God's biblical truth to fill in that's navel and and what we have had has been horribly tortured and out of context and doesn't even really cover what the Bible teaches in those passages. But we go on. God help renew my mind with truth. You know, it's such a powerful prayer. And, and in fact, it's, it's powerful because it's based on, on something the Apostle Paul once wrote in, uh, in Romans chapter 12. L- l- listen to the scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, what? What's the word? Of your mind. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, in other words, listen. One of the ways 
that our lives are changed and transformed is through the process of having our minds renewed. Okay, learning how to think the way that God wants me to think. And how do we do that? That only occurs through deep, sober study of God's word. Deep, real study of God's word. Is that what we're getting in this sermon? And I'll tell you, part of the reason that this is such a powerful prayer for those of us who are carrying around baggage is because, I mean, think about this prayer. God, renew my mind with truth. The reason this is so powerful is because so often the baggage that we carry around with us in our lives are covered in lies. And lying is a sin. They're covered in untruths. Lies that maybe someone told you as a kid. Lies Lies that someone told you as a kid. Someone might have told you last week. Or maybe it's even lies that you have told yourself. Uh, No, 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 no. Is is this self-esteem garbage? Most of the baggage that we carry around in life are covered in lies. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You'll never amount to anything. I think that's kind of lies he's referring to. What about the sins I commit? The real problem I have is not that I'm a victim of somebody telling me, you're never going to amount to anything. You're going to end up growing up and pumping gas for a living. No. The problem I have is that I sin against God's holy and righteous law. I am a wicked sinner. Yeah, but Scott, okay, what, what happened to me in my life, it really happened. Well, here's the thing. It may have really happened. But whatever it was does not have to be what defines you today. I don't know what this means. You may have been hurt. You may have been abused. You I have been hurt. I've been abused. What about me committing sins? The, the things I'm actually responsible for doing. You may have been told that you are no good. You may have experienced relational problems. You may, <sighs> whatever it might be, I'm sure it really happened. I'm sure it was very painful for you beyond what I can even imagine. But here's the promise. Do you not realize that my wickedness, my sinfulness is beyond what you could imagine? And so is yours. I mean, come on, Pastor Hodge. If we were to take your mind and open it up and paint it on the walls for everybody to see, you think that we would think very well of you at the end of it? You are shot shot through with sin. So am I. Quit making it sound like I'm some kind of a psychological victim and that Jesus came to help me overcome my hurts and boo-boos. Here's the truth from God is that whatever it was that happened to you, whether it was last week, last year, 20 years ago, it does not have to continue to define who you are today. Ugh, really? And see, here's the thing. When you and I, when we make the decision in our lives to trust and and to follow Jesus, what we're really doing is we're opening our hearts and we're joining our hearts and our minds to a greater truth. To a greater reality. I mean, in other words... Where is this in the Bible? 
forwards. I mean, part of our journey of growth, I think, is, is constantly asking God to help us think the way he thinks. It's constantly asking God to help us to think differently about who he says we are and what is true. And Do you not understand who God says we are? I mean, let me remind you here. Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. How's that one? I mean, or maybe we can go into Romans chapter 3. Let's see here. Okay. So what shall we conclude then? Verse 9. Are we any better? Well, no, not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned together and have turned away and together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Is this what you're saying God says about me, Pastor? What is not true? I mean, so many great examples. I mean, as you begin to open up the scriptures, you read things like this, for example. God says in his word that you and I have been redeemed and forgiven. Okay, gospel. That's the gospel. We've been redeemed and forgiven. But you're saying this in the context of baggage. And you haven't correctly equated baggage with sin. And you haven't addressed really the the, the burning issue of what is wrong with us. There's another place in, in the Bible where it says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. You're just going to rattle off disconnected Bible verses? There, there's another place where we're told that we are God's masterpiece. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus. I mean, those are the types of realities that God wants to awaken us to. That and no, 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 no. Those, those don't. Not, God's not going to awaken us to that. Oh, that. Those realities are for Christians. God wants to fill our minds with, and I'll tell you, the reason He wants to do that is because more often than not, what we tend to believe about ourselves is quite a bit different from what God believes about us. Uh, you're leaving out the part about sinner, the uh, sinners, you know, you sinners. You, you heard of them. And, and so whatever it is, whether it's fear that's do, that dominates your thoughts, whether it's, whether it's uh, anxiety, maybe, maybe it's low... Okay, here we go. Hang on a second. I, I heard him. Going, he's going to talk about low self-esteem here in a second. got to back it up so that we can hear it in context. From what God believes about us. And so, and so whatever it is, whether it's fear that's do, that dominates your thoughts, whether it's, whether it's uh, anxiety, maybe, maybe it's low self-esteem. 
So are you suffering from fear, anxiety, or low self-esteem? Huh. My problem is I esteem myself way too much. And I don't fear, love, and trust in God above all things. How come you're not dealing with my very real problem? Maybe you grew up and you had people who said nothing but negative things to you in your life. Or, or maybe you had, you had people around you that were constantly afraid and scared. And so they would speak words of fear all the time. And so now you find yourself 20 years later afraid. So Jesus came to help you overcome your psychological disorders. Great. Maybe you heard things like, you know, you're not good enough. You're, you're not perfect enough. You're not, you're not talented enough. Or, man, it's too bad you're not more like your brother. Too bad you're not more like your sister, whatever it might be. What about the sins? Sins. You know, pe- the people who are at your church are actually sinners, and they've committed horrible and heinous crimes against God. They are by nature rebellious against him, and you're focusing them on fear, anxiety, and low self-esteem? Come on. Listen. Part of surrendering our baggage begins by asking God to renew our minds with truth. And apparently renewing our minds with truth is self-affirmations of I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn, people like me. Now here's what's important to understand about this. Okay, this is huge. Renewing our minds with truth is not just about getting rid of negative thoughts. You're not even dealing with biblical categories here, Pastor. Okay, it's not just about getting rid of them, flickering them out, like, wherever we flick. Or should I say goat herder? Flick them outer space, wherever, okay? It's not just about, got to get rid of the negative thoughts. No, 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 no. It's also, and I'd say even more importantly, about taking it a step further and asking God to fill our minds with his truth. And the way he's set this all up, it's some kind of psychological affirmation. It's not forgiven, a sinner forgiven. It's somebody who's had fear and and anxiety and they have low self-esteem because somebody told them they weren't good enough. Okay, so it's not just about getting rid of the negative thoughts. It's about asking God to fill our minds with what he says. And I don't know about you, but I mean, this is something that I struggle with every day. Thinking the right way. No, it's just me. That's because you're a sinner. This is me. Hey, I tell you what, not a day goes by that I don't catch myself thinking something that is different than what God thinks. Maybe, you know, sin. Maybe for me, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe Come on, it's a three letter word S I N. You sin. For me, it's, it's about a negative attitude that I'm carrying. And I, and I know it's virtually... <sighs> For heaven's sakes. He suffers from negative attitudes. You call that a confession? Almost impossible for you to imagine that Scott Hodge would ever have a negative attitude. I know. You're a sinner just like me. I expect a lot worse from you. It's not nearly as bad as my wife, but I'm just saying. I'm <laughs> just kidding. I'm in trouble. Or, or maybe, you know, for me, sometimes it's anxiety. Sometimes for me, it's fear. Oh, no. You suffer from anxiety and fear? Oh, whatever will we do? It's fear with, about my kids because they just scare the crap out of me sometimes. No, I'm just kidding. 
Or maybe it's, maybe it's just downright not trusting God. But I'll tell you what, it's a daily, daily part of our lives. And see, so, so, so what needs to happen is as those thoughts come into our minds... You, you actually need to understand what sin is. You, you're not dealing with the right problem here. You're not solving the problem that Christ came to solve. You're not even proclaiming the real good news at this point. As we, as we begin to recognize that these thoughts are not consistent, they're, they're not truth, okay? Listen, not only do we get rid of the thoughts, but we want to replace them with what God says. This is what uh, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians when he says we need to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Can we read that together? Let's- oh, so that verse is about us having positive affirmations and believing the right things about ourselves so that we don't have bad attitudes, fear, and anxiety. You are kidding me. Let's read it. Ready? Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. See? All right. Hold on a second here. We're going to have to read it in context because he's. this is not about psychological affirmations at all. Oh, man. Hang on a second here. I want to change my search parameters, and I only want... Um, the New Testament. Hang on a second here. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Second Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. Let me read it in context. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg that when I come to you, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. So is that about psychological affirmations of of, uh, renewing your mind with truth that that you are good enough and... No. Not even close. See, this is so important because if all you do is get rid of the negative thoughts, okay, but you don't replace those thoughts with what God says, then over time what will happen is you'll end up defaulting to whatever it is you believe the most. And if you haven't filled your heart with what God says, guess what you're going to divert back to? You're going you're gonna to go back to believing what you used to believe and what you're trying so hard to get rid of. You've got to be kidding me. Uh, this the belief he's talking about is not the same belief that the New Testament calls us to. It's not the same belief that Jesus calls us to when he says, "Repent and believe the good news." And, and, and so that's our first prayer. God, help renew my mind with truth. In fact, could we just together uh, as a community, in fact, those of you even listening to our podcast right now, you're listening online, okay? Don't feel like you have to participate here. Okay, no matter where you're at around the world, around the country, let's all, even right here, let's pray this prayer together. Are you ready? God, help renew my mind with truth. Now, let me give you the second prayer. The second one is, is a prayer of healing. And the prayer is this, God, help restore what's lost. 
God, help restore what's lost. You know, I lost my G.I. Joe action figure when I was a kid. Do you think God will restore that for me? What's been lost in your life? Maybe it's joy. Oh, no. Satan came and stole my joy. Perhaps something's happened in your life that brought pain and grief into your life, and you've just kind of come to this place where you're not sure you'll ever be able to feel joy again. You're kidding me. Maybe, maybe for some of us, it's, it's re- our reputation. Something, something you've done, or, or, or worse yet, maybe it's something someone else has done to you. Why would something somebody else has done to me be worse yet than something else I've done? That doesn't make any sense. I am going to stand before God. The people who are in your congregation, Scott Hodge, are going to have to stand before God someday and give an accounting of their life. And you are not preparing them to deal realistically with what's really going to happen. If they do not repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins, they're going to stand before God and give an accounting of their life based upon their own righteousness. You are distracting them away from the most important message, and you're not dealing with the sin problem at all. This is the most watered-down, castrated version of sin I've ever heard in my life. And for whatever reason, it brought shame, it brought embarrassment into your life. And so maybe for some of you, it's that you need God to restore your reputation. What is it that's been lost in your life? In the Bible, you know, when you begin to read about this guy, we talked about him earlier, David. You know, David was a guy that needed God to restore a lot of things. In fact, David, he needed more than rest. He needed like a complete overhaul. You know what I mean? So some of you are like, oh man, that is so me. I need an overhaul, okay? <laughs> and David was one of those guys. I mean, whether it was his reputation, whether it was joy, whether it was his faith, I mean, the guy needed, he needed to be restored on so many levels at so many different times. And, and I think that he really began to understand that God could do this. You've you got to be kidding me. He's psychologizing King David? I mean, I think he really began to believe. In fact, there's this time where he prays this prayer in Psalm 71, verse 20. You are aware that David was a murderer, an adulterer. Listen to this. He says, though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter. I mean, how many of you, we could stop right there and you could see, you know what, I can kind of relate to that. His wives were raped by his son on the roof of the palace in Jerusalem. And that was a punishment for his sin. Though you've made me see troubles, many and bitter. I mean, I think there's probably all of us, to a degree, can say we felt those types of things and experienced them. The problem is we stop right there oftentimes, don't we? We talk about how bad it is, and then we stop. But see where David continues, and he says, he says, he says, though you've made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. Do you think he might be talking about resurrection? You know, our hope on the last day when God will raise us from the dead? Because, you know, you talk about restoring things that are lost. 
I've got a payday coming. The wages of sin is death. I'm going to die. You're going to die. David is dead. If his bones even still exist in any kind of a, of a coherent form, they, they probably don't. He's probably down to dust at this point. He's talking. I'll, I'll never forget when uh, when our daughter Julia, she was about two years old, and uh, <laughs> had one of those panicky parent moments. Parents, have you ever had one of those? No. It's just like in a, in, a, in, a, in an instant. Like, Sorry, lying. Like everything changes, right? And you just begin to, you know, freak out. And, and, and for for us, it happened in Target, or as as I call it with my daughters, Target. You know. I don't think Scott Hodge is actually very fluent or versed in the Bible. I don't think he really knows what the book says. And so we were in Target, and it was me and Julia and my oldest daughter, Elise, and we're shopping, we're having a nice time, trying on sunglasses, and all of a sudden, Julia is gone. She's gone. And so, of course, you know, when that happens... So this is uh, an example of parenting baggage? In that case, I was like, yes. No, I'm kidding. I was not. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. No, it was an awful feeling. Awful. Absolutely. So, so all of a sudden, you know, I, 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 like, I like went into commando mode, you know, and I said, Elise, to the front doors now. Go right now. Stand at the front door. So she goes. And, of course, I, at that moment, I, I mean, everything, all of a sudden, my priorities shifted from shopping for sunglasses to finding my lost child. I mean, at that moment, she became my number one priority. I, all this, I knew where Elise was. Oh, this would be a great segue for the gospel. How God made it his top priority to save us sinners. Literally went to the gates of hell themselves. Died on the cross for our sins. That would be a great place to bring that in, just thought I'd point it out. She was at the front door where someone could have easily snatched her. But, you know, <laughs> we don't, you know, she's a tough kid, you know. I mean, she, boom, you know. But I, w- I was concerned. And so I began running around the store, you know, and, 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 you know, it's funny because, you know, I'm trying to imagine where she would have, won- you know, a two-year-old, you know. Well, you know, of course, the two-year-olds, they always go to the toy section, right? And, and then, of course, I'm also wondering, like, how am I going to go home and explain to my wife, and, and I can have one less child. How do you, like, there's just no way you can win there, okay? And so, so, you know, I'm running around, I'm praying to God, like the most Pentecostal prayer known to mankind. Like, I'm begging, God, please, Jesus, Lord, oh, Jesus. And so, and so I'm running around Target, and, I, and all of a sudden, off in the distance, I hear her giggling. And so I walk, and I follow my ear, follow her sound, and uh, I turn the corner, and there she is, not with the other children in the toy department. No, 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 uh uh-uh. She wasn't even close to there. No, no, she was rolling around on the floor of the women's lingerie department with women's underwear draped all over her body. Her head, her arms, her legs, everywhere. (laughs) And, And let me tell you something. It's a good thing she did that. Because I was so angry, but it was so funny. <laughs> but you know, isn't it funny how, how in those moments, I mean, in a split second, your priorities change. 
I mean, suddenly that, that lost child becomes your number one priority. Please go to the gospel. Please go to the gospel. And so that's why last year when we went to Disney World, got us some leashes. <laughs> I didn't really. I didn't really. Because it just looks too cruel. But I don't know. I could use one. But I mean, suddenly, you know, that lost child. And see, here's the thing. What, this is what's so amazing about God. What's so beautiful about God is that his number one priority has always been on what's lost. Okay, but you haven't defined that yet, and how we're lost in our trespasses and sins. Always has been. I mean, and you see this so clearly in, in the life of Jesus. When, when you read in the Gospels, in fact, there's this passage in uh, Luke chapter 15 where Jesus tells three stories. And, and these stories are, are, it's like he's really communicating his heart and what it is, uh, you know, his priorities. And the first story is a story about lost sheep. Right, the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And basically the story goes like this. Okay, let's say a man has a hundred sheep and he loses one. What will he do? Well, he's going to leave the 99 that aren't lost and he's going to go find the one that is lost. And then the story basically goes that once that, once that one is found, he's going to call his friends together and they're going to celebrate. They're going to have lamb chops. No, I'm kidding. I added that. Huh. Okay, but then he tells a second story. The second story is about a lost coin. And it goes like this. Okay, basically a woman, she has ten silver coins. You know, you could actually read the text. You know, Because you, you want people to... You, you had, your first prayer was, help renew my mind with truth. God's word is truth. And she loses one. What happens? She blames her husband. No, I added that in too. No, what really happens... You see, if you would read the text, then your stupid little jokes wouldn't be distracting from the story. Is she rips her house apart to find it. And then we're told that once she finds it, she calls her friends and she calls her neighbors together because it's been found and they celebrate. And then there's a third story. The third story is about a lost son. Some of you may know the story. And it basically goes like this. One day a son... He takes his father's inheritance and he, and he completely squanders it. Ends up losing... He forgot the part about he wants his father dead. Losing everything. I mean, he ends up in the pits with absolutely nothing to show for it. I mean, he is lost big time. And so one day he like comes to his senses. He couldn't afford alcohol anymore, so now he's not drunk. So he can actually think straight. And so one day he comes to his senses... And he wakes up to the reality that the only option he really has is either to be completely homeless and end up dying, or he could go back to his father's house and beg for a job as one of his servants. And so he's on his way home. I don't think he's going to handle the gospel right here. Oh, but I'm hoping. <sighs> when all of a sudden, look what happens. Let me, let me read it to you. Luke 15, verse 20. It says... Verse 20. While he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming. And look at this. Listen. Filled with love and compassion, he ran not away from his son. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. You forgot the part about where the son says, Father, I have sinned against you. The son gets the confession of sins out, right? Yeah. You should, you should have read the whole passage, Scott. 
And we don't have time to get into the, the, the cultural context of this, but it's an amazing story. And when you Why not? Why don't you have time? You had time to tell the story about your daughter rolling around the floor with underwear on her. You had time for that story, but you don't have time to help us properly understand what the passage you just referred to meant. You understand the context. It's just amazing what occurred right here. Are you going to just tell me that it's amazing, but you're not going to show me how it's amazing? <sighs> but I mean, the dad, I mean, I mean, the, the, the dad, you know, the son comes home and, and the dad throws this huge party and celebrates because what was lost has now been found. Okay, we're right in gospel territory here, dude. Bring it home. Come on, give me the gospel. Bottom line, God's priority has always been about finding and restoring whatever it is that's been lost. How am I lost? How? How am I lost? Which means that God cares about whatever it is that's been lost in your life. He cares. No. No, no, no. Oh, man. This is a different gospel. This is not the biblical gospel. This is something completely different. I'm going to back that up because it's that awful. You have got to be kidding me. I mean, uh, Scott, just preach the text. Here we go again in context so that you can hear this non-gospel gospel. gospel He doesn't know what the gospel is. Has now been found. Bottom line, God's priority has always been about finding and restoring whatever it is that's been lost. Which means that God cares about whatever it is that's been lost in your life. He cares. Don't you understand, Scott? I'm the thing that was lost. I am. You are. The people in the audience who are in your so-called church, they're the ones that are lost. Dead in trespasses and sins. God cares about them. He wants them. They're the lost sheep. They're the lost coin. They're the lost son. And you're saying that God cares about the things that are lost in our life? As if the things I've lost in my life are of any consequence whatsoever compared to me. Christ died for my sins, for your sins. We're what was lost. And see, that's the beauty of the gospel. I mean, that, that's the beauty of God's story. The fact that one day God will redeem and restore every bit of brokenness and loss <sighs> in our lives. I don't know how you're, how you're defining gospel in that sentence. I, I don't know. And, you know, he won't even stop there because not only will he redeem and restore his children, but the Bible even says that he will even re- redeem and restore creation, this earth itself. In fact, uh, that's why the scriptures say in Romans 8 that creation itself looks forward to the day, looks forward to the day when it'll join with God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. I mean, look, you and I, we feel the effects of sin in our life, don't we? Oh, there, oh, did you hear that? Ring a bell. Ding, ding, ding. He said the word sin. Finally, we see them. We feel them. We experience them. So does creation. Creation looks forward. So, so what is it that God wants to restore in your life? 
No, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> is, is it hope? I mean, do you feel hopeless right now? Oh, so, so the gospel is that God's going to restore hope in my life. Is it, is it intimacy in your marriage? Oh, so the gospel is that God's going to restore intimacy in my marriage. I mean, maybe for some of you, it's not about God restoring intimacy because maybe you've never had it. And it's actually asking God, God, for the first time, would you bring intimacy into my marriage? Maybe for some, it's sexual innocence that was lost or, or worse yet, was, was maybe even taken away from you. This is psychobabble. This is not biblical theology. This is not sound doctrine. Perhaps it's, it's, it's childlike faith. Maybe you can remember a time in your life where you really did trust God and you really did have faith that he would do something great in your life and you've come to a place now where you just have a hard time believing him for anything. I am crawling out of my skin. Maybe it's joy. What is it that God wants to restore in your life? God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling us to himself in Jesus Christ. Don't you get that? The gospel is that God reconciled and restored me to him. And he did it all without my help. Unilaterally. God, help restore what's lost. Can we pray that together? Let's pray it. God, help restore what's lost. Last but not least, there's a third prayer. Oh, thank God it's the last one. I don't think I can handle any more. And it's this right here. God, help me release my offender. Help me release my offender. Uh, I wonder if this is going to deal with the biblical definition of forgiveness and mercy because of the mercy given us in Jesus Christ. Don't have a lot of hope here, but, you know, he says that God can restore things. I've lost my hope here. Maybe God can restore my hope in Scott Hodge. You see, the first two can be, can be fairly easy to pray. God, renew my mind. God, restore what's been lost. This prayer, though, th- this can be a hard one to pray. And, 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 I, and I'll tell you what, because uh, here's why I think. I, have, I think not only does the baggage that we tend to carry around with us, not only does that baggage, you know, not only is it covered in lies... And not only when we carry that baggage do we experience loss in our lives, or that baggage is even a result of that loss, whatever it might be, but but more often than not, when you and I look at the baggage in our lives, it also carries with it an offender. An offender. Maybe Maybe it was someone who hurt you. I'm the offender. You're the offender. Maybe Maybe it was someone who lied to you, or abused you oh man deistic therapeutic therapeutic deism i don't i don't know what this is this is not christianity by the way just just on a little side note here 
when you really understand the depth of your sin and the mercy that God has shown you in Jesus Christ, I mean, think about it. Think about your sin. You know every single lie, every single rebellion, every single bit of lack of trust, your adulteries, your fornications, your lying, your cheating, your stealing, your gossiping, your slandering, all of the things that you have done. You have, you have been the offender over and over and over and over again. And you know it. And yet, Christ died for all of your sins and is offering you full and complete pardon. Slate wiped clean, case dismissed, debt paid in full, justice met, you are righteous in Christ. That's what he's offering. Repent and believe this good news. When you understand the depth of the mercy of Christ, I don't think you can't help but offer that same mercy to the people who have sinned against you in your life. Those sins are nothing compared to the sins that you've committed against God. Or betrayed you. Or, or, or you know what, maybe it wasn't even what someone else did to you. Maybe the offender is the person sitting in your chair right now. Oh, finally. Finally somebody's responsible for something. Maybe you are the offender. How about you are, not maybe, maybe you're the, maybe, just, it could be possible. You might have accidentally sort of kind of, might, maybe sort of been the one who could have been d- done something bad. But not that bad, just bad-ish, you know. And maybe there's a decision you made in your life or a decision that you wish you would have made, you failed to make. Yeah, I did that today. Maybe it's God. Because oftentimes I think... When- God's the offender? What? When we don't understand things, there's no explanation. God always ends up getting the blame, doesn't he? But who's the, who, who is it that's offended? You. See, as, as we begin to surrender that baggage in our lives... What Bible verse tells me I need to surrender my baggage, by the way? The, I, can, I can tell you verses that talk about confessing sins, but surrendering baggage? You and I become confronted with a choice. And it's the only way that we can let go of that baggage. It's the only way. And the, and, and the choice is this, okay? Do I remain angry, bitter, and hurt? Or do I trust God to give me strength to forgive and to release? Uh, I can forgive because of the great mercy that Christ has shown me. That's really the only way. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's why we pray that. I mean, I mean, think about this prayer. God, help me to release my offender. I mean, there is such freedom in that prayer, which is why I think that's so... Uh, yeah, I think the term I was looking for was moralistic therapeutic deism. The hard for us to pray because on the other side of that prayer is such freedom but but it's not an easy one to pray 
counterfeit. This is a counterfeit. This is not real Christianity, real forgiveness, real mercy, real grace for real sinners who committed real sins against a real God who really is righteous, who really is just, and who really is going to judge us, the living and the dead. Yet as followers of Jesus, you and I are commanded. We're commanded. Not just It's not something God suggests. You know, it would be a good thing. Your life would be better if you forgive. No, no. Listen, listen to this. Colossians 3. Paul says this. He says, make allowance for each other's faults. I mean, that, just that phrase right there is so good. And it's so easy, isn't it? <laughs> no, he's, he says, make... Yeah, but you haven't told me anything about what Colossians really teaches in context. Because you don't have time for that. Make allowance for each other's faults. I mean, do you have that in your marriage? Is there, are there, is there an allowance for faults? And he goes on to say, forgive anyone who offends you. Anyone. Anyone who offends you. And then he brings in this last part that we read and we go, oh, why did he have to say that? He says, remember, the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive others. Yeah, but how come you really haven't spent any time explaining the meaning and significance and weight and depth of God's Christ's forgiveness to me? He says, look, look, you have been forgiven by God. Not because you, you earned it. I feel a gospel crumb coming. I wonder how fast it's traveling. Not because you deserved it. Not because you've been so good in your life. No, 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 no. You have been forgiven simply because of who God is. Forgiven from what, Scott? You've been talking about baggage as if I'm some kind of a victim, and you kind of sort of maybe said that maybe I can kind of maybe sort of be the offender. Forgiven from what? And so you must also forgive others. No concept of the gospel. None whatsoever. And no concept of the law. Not to be confused with... You must forgive others only if they're sorry for what they did. Not you must forgive others once you feel like it. Or only if the pain is completely gone, then you can forgive them. No, 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 no. Listen, forgiveness is the only option for the follower of Jesus. But... You're, you've turned forgiveness into a law and you're not giving me forgiveness as grace. Oh man. In fact, not only is it the only option, but it should be our posture. I always think it's funny because growing up in the church, some of the people who seemed to get the offended the quickest were church people. Never understood that. Because if there's anybody who should be postured and ready to forgive and ready to let go, it's us as followers of Jesus. Tell you what, Scott, I will be willing to forgive you for this travesty of of a is it sermon. I am ready and willing to forgive. Are you ready to repent of your lack of biblical teaching? 
and for teaching, not teaching the correct doctrine regarding sin, repentance, the forgiveness of sins in Christ. I mean, I love the scripture. There's one uh, that that I don't know where it is off the top of my head. I'm sorry. That's because I don't really think you know what the Bible really says. I'm beginning to doubt your biblical knowledge. It's a good one. But it talks about how God... Oh, it's a good one. ...is ready to forgive us. Did you know that? God is ready. See, what happens to us in our lives is we slip up and we sin and we think... Okay, slip up. (laughs) Why are you taking away the full weight of what I really do? I slipped up. Oops. I slipped up, God. (laughs) I sinned. (laughs) I was slipsy. For whatever reason, God needs some time to get over it. Right? Well, I can't talk to God for at least a week after what I did. I mean, God needs some time to get. I can't. I mean, I can't really worship good in church because what I did last night. Oh, there's just no way. No, 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 no. Listen, God is ready to forgive you. He's ready. He's ready. Okay, so God's ready. Why do I feel like you're going to put a contingency? Upon this forgiveness, I can just feel it coming. And that is a good thing for all of us. And so you and I, we need to be ready. Uh, What? Uh, God's ready, and then so we get ready, so we got two parties ready. What about confessing our sins, repenting, and receiving Christ's forgiveness? We need to be ready to forgive. I, I didn't say we have to be ready to trust again. Because sometimes we we equate forgiveness with trust, right? Well, how can I forgive this person? This is talking about the gospel without telling you what the gospel is. This is ridiculous. I can't forgive them because if I forgive them, it means I have to trust them. No, 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 no. We need to be ready to forgive. Okay, forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. Okay, you and I are commanded to forgive. It's not optional. But trust. What about the Ten Commandments? Come on. Those are real commandments. Thou shalt not. You know, you remember Mount Sinai smoke? Moses up on the mountain, children of Israel down below getting ready to party. Any of this ring a bell, Scott? Trust is optional. And trust takes time to build, especially if that trust has been broken. It takes time. It takes, it, sometimes it takes a long time. Do you have a psychology degree? But when it comes to forgiving, we need to be ready to forgive. So, so, so don't be fooled by, by this idea that, 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 you know, it's okay. I mean, I, I talk to people all the time, and, and it seems like there are people who really believe this, that, well, you know, I have a right to be angry because of what they did. I have a right to be angry. I have, I have a right to harbor animosity or bitterness or hatred. I have a right because of what they did. No, 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 no. Listen, just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And here's the thing. When you enter into, into, excuse me, enter into a relationship with Christ, you know what you're doing? You are actually surrendering your rights to hold on to unforgiveness. You are surrendering your rights to embrace bitterness. And you are saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust you to free me from these things. And when someone hurts me, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to release I'm going to release my offender. <sighs> God, help me release my offender. Would you pray that with me? Ready? 
No. God, help me release my offender. I'll pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. That's a prayer. What he just prayed, I don't know what that was. And see, I just think that as you pray that prayer, God is going to give you the courage. And, and see, I, I know we don't have time to get into this today, but I know forgiveness is not easy. I, and I know there are probably some of you sitting here right now who are thinking, Scott, you have no idea what's happened to me. You have no idea. And it's, got to, it's so easy for you to sit up there and say these things. I understand. I understand. And God understands. And I believe that as you pray prayers like this, that God, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to just overnight. You're not going to feel it. You know, I just want to point this out. If you would pray the Lord's Prayer every day, which you really should be doing, it really is a great prayer to be praying on a daily basis. You would already be praying about forgiving people. But God will give you the courage and he will give you the strength to release that baggage of bitterness and anger and offense. I'll tell you. Okay. I, <laughs> I've had enough of the baggage sermon. Okay. We're done. We're done doing the baggage sermon. I think you've got it. There's like a couple of minutes left. I feel the sappy music coming on in the obligatory uh manipulative music and and, and and you know the the father let us just teach us to surrender our baggage lord just to help to renew my mind with truth and and just lord help me to release my offender and just you know that kind of prayer <sighs> again another example of the type of preaching that is predominantly taken over American evangelicalism, purpose-driven and seeker-sensitive church circles. And Scott Hodge is a leader among them. And he's there's a whole bunch of young guys who are planning their churches who want to be just like Scott Hodge and are ripping off his sermons and doing the same things at their churches. This is not biblical preaching. This doesn't even tell you what the gospel is. It's sad, 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 sad. Folks... <clears throat> If you're benefiting from fighting for the faith and are learning how to think biblically, how to think critically, and how to compare what people are saying to the Word of God and what God's Word truly teaches, then will you partner with us and help continue to support fighting for the faith so that we can continue bringing you this important radio outreach? You can partner with us by going to fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the donate button. Or you can write a check and make it payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box. 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, we're at the end of our broadcast week for Fighting for the Faith, and I hope that you have a great, great weekend. And if you would like to email me, you can do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Hey, until next week, may the Lord bless you. 